your hymn sheet, there is a song that reflects the passage of Scripture that we'll be looking at today. Who is this who calms the sea? Let's sing together to the tune of O oh, Four Thousand Tongues. Who is the one who calms the sea? Who bids the tempest rest? Commands the wind and waves that we might through the storm be blessed. Who is this one whose word is might, who speaks and demons flee? No past, no sin can hold too tight. He sets the captive free. Tis Jesus Christ from Galilee, and now he speaks anew. Go tell if Christ has set you free, what God has done for you. My Master, Savior, Lord and King, no power shall move thy hand, but to thy will and grace we cling, and with thee we shall stand. We praise you together today, Father, for our Lord Jesus Christ, as we have sung of his triumphal entry of his death in our place to pay the penalty of sin. And as we now turn back and look at his ministry, which pointed to who he was and demonstrated that fact over and over again, we praise you for our Savior. And I pray that through our time together in your word this morning, that we will draw closer to him, that we will see him for who he is, that you will teach us what we are to know about the Son, that we might relate to you as we should, and that we might emulate his character and his ministry and his life as is appropriate for us. We thank you, God, for the privilege that you've given us in your word to discern who you are, to seek out your will. And I pray, God, that we might understand who Jesus is better today as we consider again these passages of miracle and of the work that Jesus did while on earth. We thank you for the work that he is now doing in heaven, and we ask that you would heed his intercessory cry for us and the groans of the Spirit, that we would mature and be sanctified and be challenged and changed and convicted by our time in your word together this morning. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Make your way, if you will, to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. Human beings are relational creatures. This means in part that by nature we study people. Some of us are more oriented in this direction than others, and some of us are more accurate in our discernment than our others. But we are all people readers. We naturally size up our neighbors, our classmates, our workmates. You have formed, I am sure, distinct opinions about the people you know in this church. Even if you just met someone this morning, you begin to size them up and read them and understand them. We study what people do. 
We study how they carry themselves. We listen to what they say. And we make certain judgments about the priorities and the goals and the general orientation of their lives. We think we know who people are. It's part of who we are. We determine over time that someone is trustworthy. They're supportive, loving, dependable, wise. We determine over time that someone else is untrustworthy, negative, critical, unpredictable, or foolish. And as time passes, these judgments are fine-tuned as we give, as we're gaining new information about people all of the time, then our observations over time solidify into convictions. The painful thing about all of this in a fallen world is that we are not always right in our assessment of others, nor, as we know, are others always right in their assessment of us. Common is the bitter refrain of the divorcee, for instance. He just was not the man I thought I married. Or I was confident I could trust her as my wife, but I was very wrong. Employers and employees often read one another wrongly and suffer for it. Friends and authority figures whom we come to implicitly trust can sometimes betray or deeply disappoint us in the end. We obviously need to render judgments without sin and without prejudice. And there is also very much at stake in rendering judgments that are accurate, that correspond to reality. Now hear me on this as we think on those thoughts and direct our attention this way. There is one person above all others who has walked this, this earth whom you absolutely must read right. And that is Jesus of Nazareth. Who is Jesus to you? I'm not asking who he is to your parents. I'm not asking who he is to your church. I'm not asking even ultimately what the Bible says about him and whether or not you know what is there in the Word of God. I'm asking you personally, who is Jesus to you? As we come to the 8th chapter of Luke's Gospel, Jesus is touring northern Israel, the region of Galilee. He's traveling from town to town, from village to village, preaching and performing miracles so as to demonstrate to Israel precisely who he is. You remember in chapter 8, verses 1 through 21, he emphasized there in his teaching ministry the need to hear his word. But beginning now at chapter 8 and verse 22, Luke records four miracles which Jesus performs, each of which demonstrates who Jesus is. In these miracles, Jesus shows his power over the natural uh, realm, over natural disaster, we might call it, over the demonic realm over incurable disease, and over death. We have to get this. And the danger, of course, for us who know the Word of God and have heard these accounts before is for us to just say, I've heard this before, and to dismiss them, and not to enter into the reality of this revelation that this is who Jesus is and we must read Him rightly. We have to get this. Today we look at two, at the first two in this series of four miracles, and we witness in the first that Jesus is the Lord of the natural realm. 
Beginning at verse 22, we have here the setting. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into the boat and set out. According to Mark's account, this took place on the evening following a day of teaching along the shore of Lake Galilee. And I will purposefully here seek by God's grace to paint a picture for us, setting the time and the setting that we might as much as possible enter into that setting again. Not because we've never heard of this account before, but to try to put ourselves there and to get a sense again of who Jesus really is. So he's taught throughout this whole day there on the shore of Galilee, sitting in this boat. There's a flotilla of other boats that are surrounding him to hear his teaching. And there on the shoreline are the masses of people. He's in the boat in order to stay away from being crushed by the masses of people trying to get to him, hoping to be healed, hoping to hear him uh, teach. And so there they are on the shoreline assembled there in front of his boat as he preaches to them. This is the occasion in which he tells the parable of the sower, as we discussed it last week. Then you remember in chapter 8 and verse 19, there's this reference to Jesus' mother and brothers who are trying to get to him. They cannot even get there. They can get word to him, but they cannot physically reach him. Now it says there, if you'll notice in verse 20, that someone says to him, your mother and brothers are standing outside, indicating, of course, that he is in a house a building of some sort, a house. At putting this together with Mark, I think what's happened is that Luke has put this out of sequence. What he is doing is using this reference to Jesus' mother's, uh, mother and brothers in order to say what he's saying down there in verse 21, that his mother and brothers are those who hear his word. Remember, that is the theme of verses 1 through 21, to hear his word. So Mark has Jesus in the boat taking off immediately from the teaching Luke, if we take him chronologically here, seems to have something messed up or one of them is wrong. But they're not wrong at all. Luke has just placed this account here thematically. When we look at the history of it, Jesus is still in this boat teaching through uh, an extended period of time. And then as he closes out his message that day to the throngs on the seashore, he says to the disciples, as we have here, and you'll notice there that Luke then puts in verse 22, one day, and he's just simply seeking to not worry about the chronology here immediately because of the point of putting the account with his mother and brothers there ahead. So he just says one day, but we know by looking back on it that it is this day and that this day is coming to a close. It's nearing darkness. And Jesus says to his disciples, let's go to the other side of the lake. His departure is noted here then in verse 22, as, he, as it says here that they got into the boat. That is a poor translation. It would be better rendered, they put out to sea. It's not talking about them physically putting their feet in the boat, but actually they're in it already, according to Mark, and they put out to sea. They're sitting there down by the shoreline, and now they put out to sea. So Mark seems to, uh, to indicate that they never do touch land again so as not to be mobbed. But Jesus stops his teaching. The disciples hoist the sail on the boat, and they head out to sea on their five-mile journey across Lake Galilee. Uh, their destination is at five miles is just about as far as your eye can see. They can see the other shore 
uh, fairly well on a clear day, but it's about as far as you can see. So you think about that, you see that shoreline over there on the other side. It's going to take a little while to get there by sailboat. Remember, this is a large fishing boat, perhaps 25 feet in length, can hold all of the disciples that are on this journey, and there is a sail that is hoisted, and off they go into the calm sea, the sun setting, the moon and stars beginning to dot the evening sky with their dim light. You will remember that the last time Jesus taught from a fishing boat and then said, let's go out to sea, some amazing things happened, and it's going to be the same with this occasion. You remember the last time was when Peter was with him and, the, and his fishing partners, and the great catch of fish was received, and Peter fell down at the feet of Jesus in great fear. Watch, for tonight will be another spectacle. But as they are then floating out into sea and sailing across Galilee, Jesus falls asleep. We notice here, as they sailed, verse 23, he fell asleep. Notice that vital statement and keep it in mind. Here is a man, fully human, who is exhausted from a day of teaching. Now the boats of that day would have in the stern a little area that was set aside for often the helmsman or anyone that needed to, and if there was ever a dignitary, for that individual to lay down on a carpet in the stern and there was a cushion there. Mark, in fact, mentions the cushion. So it sounds pretty impossible to us that you fall asleep on a fishing boat, but understanding these sizable boats and understanding the setting there, Jesus lays down on that place, and after this day of teaching, and you can imagine the energy that was necessary to elevate his voice, to speak to these throngs of people on the shore over the lapping of the water and the wind and all. And uh, he is very tired and falls asleep. As he is sleeping and as the disciples are journeying by boat to the other side of Lake Galilee, Nature assaults the, the party. We notice there in verse 23 that a squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. Now Galilee is almost 700 feet below sea level and particularly on the northeast and the eastern sides there is mountainous terrain that surrounds the lake and that mountainous terrain is creased at places by these deep gorges that tilt down toward the lake. So you can imagine what happens when there is a temperature inversion. The heat from the lake is rising in the evening hours and the cool from the mountains comes down and when there is that inversion at that point, the cold air will rush down into those gorges and hit the lake with no notice at all. And all of a sudden, with perfectly blue sky, you can be in a situation that is very dangerous as the wind whips up the lake. And of course, this is a lake. It's not like the seas where there is sort of this rhythm uh, of the waves that come. But here in a lake, the waves can be contrary to one another and, and can break upon a boat with, with great catastrophe. And that is the situation in which they find themselves here. So as these powerful, they're, they're, there they are, they're thrown about in this violent water. Their vessel is beaten by the high winds which howls viciously in their ears. As the powerful waves are crashing against the sides of their vessel, they are drenched and the water is swamping the boat. It's coming into the boat and sinking it. You can, if you can put yourself there and hear it and feel the water and sense the danger, they were in great peril. I've been on a lake once when I did not 
think I was going to get back. And I'll tell you, it's a fearful place to be. And if you saw the little tiny waves hitting the little boat, you might laugh in retrospect. This is no game. These are fishermen. They're used to being thrown around a little bit by the wind, but they are ready to die, and they know it. It's a dangerous place. I don't know if you've ever been in a spot. I have in one occasion, as I've told the story often, but I've been in one occasion in a storm where I knew I was dead. I didn't have any questions about it. It was just when was I dead. That's a frightening place to be. It's amazing what you think about in that moment. That's where these disciples are. They know that they are facing death. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. They cannot stand against the storm and they know that they're dying. And they're panicking. Their voices are raised. And their faces are pale with fright. And their eyes are wide open as the adrenaline rushes. And they realize they're nearing the end of their life. In panic. And there is Jesus at the back of the boat, asleep. Well, the disciples respond, as we might imagine, in their panic. They went, verse 24, and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. It's something like, wake up, Master. And of course, as we read into this, there's there's no way that they come up to him and gently rock him and say, "Uh, Jesus, you know, they're in a panic. They're waking him up. He's coming out of a dead sleep and sensing the situation as he tries to wake up. And they're, 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 they're probably yelling at the top of their lungs because of the wind, if no other reason. Master, Master, we're going to drown. In other words, Master, wake up. You're taking your last breath on this earth. Prepare your soul to meet God. I don't believe that they're rousing him saying, Jesus, fix this. They're waking him up saying, we are in the worst spot of our lives and we're just about to die. Let's face death together. Jesus responds, the middle of verse 24, with words that are difficult for us to conceive. But he got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided. And all was calm. It must have seemed in that moment as if time stood still, wouldn't it? There they are standing or sitting in this boat, utterly drenched. Water is still running down their faces, reminding them of what just was. Their voices, like the wind, have fallen silent. Their eyes are now wider than they were before. As the moonlight reflects off a glassy sea, they can hear their hearts pounding in their chests, and they blink with disbelief, their minds racing to discern what has just happened. And in that moment of calm, Jesus issues a second rebuke, first to the sea, now to them, verse 25. Where is your faith? Where is your faith? Every time I read that, I just can't help but say, that's really not fair. (laughs) Where is your faith? How else are they supposed to respond? You know when there's such power of nature and that noise that just itself scares you half to death. 
Here they are facing this and facing their death. And Jesus says, where is your faith? How were they to know that Jesus would or even could do what he did? Well, I don't know that that's Jesus' point. I think that we can be fairly sure that they were not expecting him to stand up and to rebuke the wind and to stop the sea. I think what he is saying here is, where is your faith in God? Where is your faith in the God of the universe? And as tough a rebuke as that is, it is a fair one. If you understand that God is sovereign Lord of the universe, if you believe in his providence, you believe that he works all things according to the purpose of his will, you are invincible if he wants you to live. And you can rest in his arms if he wants you to die. Where is your faith? It's a tough test but it's a fair question. I think of the account of John Wesley, who was here on the shores of, uh, here in America as a, an evangelist, and probably, as we look back at the account, very likely as an unconverted evangelist. Doing the Christian thing, believing that he was reaching Americans for Christ, but in fact himself probably unconverted. John Wesley left America in shame. It was not an effective mission. And he went back very discouraged and searching for God. And there on the ship as he went back, there was a great storm at sea. And he saw there some Moravian people, believers, a type of a believer, a group, a movement within England. And there they were in the midst of this storm while everyone was saying goodbye to life, some cursing God, some in utter incapacitating fear. And there were these Moravians at peace of heart praying. And John Wesley never forgot that. When he got to the shores of England, he looked up the Moravians. And he began to attend a Bible study held by such individuals. It is possible when your faith is strong to face death without fear. If Jesus wants you to live you're invincible. If he wants you to die, you can rest in his arms at peace. Even the most natural of emotions can be controlled by faith in God. At least that's what Jesus thought. And after you see him still a violent windstorm with his words, are you going to argue with him? Whatever storm you're going through in your life, you can do so at peace. You can put your faith in Him. And even if your own life is threatened, you can rest. Where is your faith? Now notice how the disciples respond. This is crucial to the understanding of the account. They respond in verse 25, in fear and amazement. They asked one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey Him. You hear their voices now with everything stilled and quiet, perhaps in hushed tones, asking each other through the boat, Who is this? That is the question Luke wants us to see. 
That is the question the disciples are being nurtured to understand. That is the question that they will not only answer, but the truth of which they will take to their people in Israel soon. We notice here that they, are, they respond in fear and amazement. Mark says simply they were terrified. They saw the wind and the waves and they were frightened. Jesus stills the winds and the waves and they're terrified. Who is this? They ask. He commands even the winds and the waters and they obey him. This question parallel to 521. Remember the healing of the paralytic lowered through the roof. Jesus forgives his sin and the people ask, who can forgive sins but God alone? That is what Jesus is doing in this Galilean ministry. He continues to, he doesn't come to town with a banner over his head and people trumpeting the fact, I am God, I am God. Everybody realize that I am God and that's his message. He breaks the news gently and says with his actions, I am God. And this is what he intends people to see during this ministry, that he is the Lord. And so slowly but surely, he shows them this truth. And notice what they ask here. Who is this that can still the winds and the water? Listen to the Old Testament text, which they knew very well. Psalm 65, 7 says that it is God who, quote, stills the roaring of the seas. Psalm 89, 9, you rule over the surging sea when its waves mount up, you still them. Psalm 107 tells of merchants on the high seas when God, and I quote, spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens. The picture of rising on this great wave. And they went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunken men. They were at their wit's end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And what did he do? He brought them out of their disaster. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. In other words, as Marshall puts it, what God did then in the Old Testament... Jesus does now. Who is this? That is the question. And the thought terrifies the disciples. Clearly, he is Lord of the natural realm. Or as Paul would put it after a few more decades of theological meditation, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. That means the ruler of all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. This is who he is. Now, remember the sleep? This is also the one who had to sleep. He couldn't even make it into the night, so exhausted. We have here in this passage a blending of the true humanity and the true deity of Jesus Christ. This is who he is. 
And I ask you this morning if that is who, if that is your assessment of Jesus Christ. Gagging on the implications of this passage, one commentator instructed me that what's really going on here is Jesus is calming down the disciples in the midst of a storm. Well, I just say an answer. Luke has a very strange way of putting that, let me tell you. You've got to dismiss the text, or you've got to see that Jesus spoke to the wind and the waves, and they stopped. And your answer to that question or the choice that you make has a lot to do with seeing Jesus for who he really is. There's a reason that Paul says of him that he is the image of the invisible God. There's a reason that he says that he created all things and by him and for him they were created. And one of those reasons is because Paul's predecessors were in this boat and they saw it. Yes, Jesus calms the disciples. In fact, in one sense, we could say that he doesn't even calm the disciples, does he, in the text? They were terrified. He does what the text says he did. I think it's a frighteningly wrong assessment to say that Jesus just calmed the disciples. He shows in this passage that he is Lord of the natural realm. We press on quickly at verse 26. We find then secondly that Jesus is Lord of the supernatural realm. They sail to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. All kinds of difficulty of knowing where that is or exactly what is being said there, but clearly across to the eastern side of the shore. We know that it is at the shore, for when Jesus stepped ashore, it says in verse 27, so here the battered boat finally reaches shore on the east side of Galilee. It's perhaps still darkness, dark time, nighttime. The exhausted disciples disembark with Jesus and are met by a spiritual hurricane on the shore. We find that Jesus is confronted by a demon-possessed man there in verse 27. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. That is in the tombs. The picture we should get here in perhaps the eerie darkness as they beach their boat is of these limestone cliffs that line the shore. And in those cliffs they would carve in and dig out caves in which they would bury people. This man is in such a horrible condition that he lives among the dead. He's no longer fit to even live with people that live normal lives of any sort. He is the lowest of all outcasts. But so low is his condition, he's more frightening than he is pitiable. We notice in verse 28, and Mark would add that he comes running at Jesus. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. Now the reason that he said that, verse 29, is that Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. There's a lot that we don't see here, but apparently Jesus knows that the man is demon-possessed. Maybe he can view that and see that or hear that. And he commands the spirit to come out. They don't, it does not come out, but comes running to Jesus and falls down before him and mentions here, says here, that he is the son of the Most High God, a clear claim of deity, a clear 
statement of Jesus' deity. Uh, you, you can imagine here about this point the disciples are about ready to retire. It's been a long, hard night. And here they come with this guy screaming at them out of the caves. And by the way, for a Jew, someone living among the tombs at night is about as scary a proposition as there is. There's all types of uh, myths and things about what was going on at graveyards or these caves that held the dead at night. It was a place of, of utter fear for the Jew. Here are these disciples seeing this man come running at them and yelling at Jesus these words that are confusing in the dark and they're with their fatigued minds. Many times, we have a little aside here in verse 29 as to what this man's condition was really all about. Many times it had seized him, that is the demon, here viewed in the singular. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Horrible condition. But this man in this spot yet yells out to Jesus, don't torture me. If there is any man who is ever tortured, it's this man. Yet he doesn't want Jesus to torture him. Isn't that an amazing thought? He's speaking as if it is himself speaking, as if he is in charge of his reasoning and says, don't torture me, shouting at him. The word torture here does not mean don't take out a whip and whip me. The word torture here means to examine or to test. This is the same concern that was expressed by the demon who possessed the man in the synagogue service. If you'll remember back in chapter 4, before Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. Jesus' ministry is an all-out assault on the demonic realm. And the demons understand that. Now, the man says, me, don't torment me in the singular, seeming to refer to himself, but we'll see below the situation. Verse 29 gives us this, this added detail then about how powerful he is, which helps us understand then what follows. Verse 30, Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. It's just a scary thought. I don't know if his voice came with the sound of many voices or a different voice came out of him at this moment or what the case was, but legion in that time and setting, five to 6,000 soldiers, Roman soldiers, were referred to as a legion. I don't know that it's necessarily intended to be a precise number, but there were many, many demons possessing him. We've seen in Mary Magdalene that people can be multiply possessed. She had seven demons in her. This man has a legion. And in a horrible state, living without clothes among the dead. The demons now pronounce through the man that there are many that are here. Jesus responds in verse 31 or they respond to Jesus, they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. So there is a battle that is going on here. Jesus is clearly outnumbered as far as a numerical match. They're concerned, however, as they battle with him, that he will not order them into the abyss. 
The concern you will notice is first presented as the man's concern in verse 28. Don't torment me. Don't examine me. Don't test me. Don't torment me. But here it is the demons that are speaking and saying, we don't want to go into the abyss, which Bach calls the abode of the dead and a place of confinement and imprisonment for the demons. The text does not give us any more information about what this means, and we'd like to know, but perhaps it's best we don't. I don't know what's going on here. I don't know what they are thinking. But in some, all we can know is that they know they can be consigned to this place of judgment, and they don't want to go there. And what else is assumed? They know Jesus can send them there. They know with a word from his mouth, that's right where they're going to know. They go. That's, they know what the wind and the sea know. When this man speaks, you do what he says. Don't torment us. Don't send us to the abyss. Verse 32, a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into them, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. Again, we have no idea what's going on there. Why the demons want to possess the swine? Why the hogs bolt for the cliff? We don't know. We cannot be dogmatic that this is a judgment, nor that Jesus intends to destroy the pigs. All we can know is what happened. The reason this detail is in the text, I think, has more to do with what follows. But first, let's ask, is Jesus sinning here by destroying these pigs? I had a Muslim evangelist some time ago trying to convert me to Islam, and this was one of his big arguments. Jesus was an evil man. He destroyed these people's property. Mark tells us 2,000 hogs. That's a lot of bacon. Or as somebody once said, a lot of deviled ham. But uh, it's, it's, a lot of, it's, it's a lot of money. Now, Jesus, that wasn't mine. <laughs> Jesus, uh, matter of fact, I forgot about that until just now, actually. Uh, Jesus does, in some respect, contribute to the destruction of this property. So is he evil? Is he wrong? Well, all that we know here is that God does permit people to sin. That never makes him responsible for their sin. Jesus permits the demons to enter the pigs. That does not make Jesus responsible for what the demons do in the pigs. On the other hand, the demons may not have been granted power to control the pigs. Perhaps the pigs are controlling the demons. Perhaps Jesus is sending them to their death. Why in this way? I don't know. We can't answer that. But perhaps they are frightened and running to the uh, lake and there Jesus is sending these demons to the abyss. It's possible that Jesus is also judging Jewish owners of these pigs who had no right to possess them. That is a possibility, completely unprovable. It's also true that Jesus could have provided food for these people had they come to him in humility and said, You are God. We know that you are God. We fall before you and we appeal to you, Jesus, to replace the food that has been destroyed through your exorcism. He had the power to do it. And certainly we can also add here that the 
rescue of this one human being is far more important than a few meals. Why this happened, we can't answer. What we've got to bend to is that Jesus is Lord and that he did what he did and was absolutely righteous. We don't know what's going on. But ultimately, the point of the text is that 2,000 pigs going off into the sea is a powerful proof to the disciples of the power of Jesus over the demonic realm. And the herd of pigs bolting as, you, as they see them going there, believe me, that's not a scene they ever forgot. 2,000 pigs as their bodies with in the staccato thud as they hit the sea had to remind the disciples over and over that Jesus is the ruler of this natural realm and also the supernatural realm. Now people respond to what Jesus has done in various ways. Verse 34, when those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. You notice that? They're afraid. They bound this individual with chains. They've had to subject him outside of society because they couldn't deal with him. They come around the bend, so to speak, and there they see the man clothed and sitting at Jesus' feet in his right mind. And they're petrified. Overcome with fear. What do they do? Verse 36. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured... Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. That's an amazing statement. They were in the presence of deity. They were in the presence of a man just like them. And putting those two together was so troubling, they just said, would you please get out of here? We can't deal with you. Again, the text doesn't give us a whole lot of insight as to why exactly they respond this way other than their fear. They're certainly very short-sighted, aren't they? Here is a man who's been delivered from demons. Think about the potential of that. Why not say to Jesus, you know what, Jesus, we have a whole lot of people around here that are ill and sick. We have a whole lot of people around here, in fact, that we believe are demon-possessed. You could really help us out. They just say, we don't want you around. Very short-sighted. They apparently do not want Jesus to tamper with their way of life. They wanted things to stay as they were. Jesus was a threat to the status quo. Who is this man? That the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this Jesus? That the demons obey him. Who is he? They're fearful of the answer. And you know what? They really don't even want to consider it. Is that not like a lot of people today? They hear what Jesus has done. They hear the stories of the miracles. They hear of his passion, of his death. 
They hear of the fact that this man, living 2,000 years ago, beat the grave. But you know what? They really don't want to deal with that. They don't really want to stop and think and consider. And that is the case with these people. They do not care enough about the spiritual deliverance of people to even unite to invite Jesus to stay with them. So no matter the deliverance that they witness, Jesus has to go. Now the demoniac responds very differently. Verse 38, the man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. Man, I just, I feel for this guy. I can imagine he really wanted to go with Jesus. I see you got a boat there that holds at least 16, 17, 20 people. I, I, you can take me with. This man had been completely shunned and driven out. And now one had come and had restored him to life. It's not him that didn't want to be tormented. It was the demons in him. Perhaps he had sinned and permitted their presence in his life, but what he knows now is that he sits before the Master's feet, listening and hearing and being taught, and he wants to be with Jesus. But Jesus says to him, you need to go home. He needed some witnesses on this side of the lake, and he picks this man to go and to tell people about Jesus. And I believe that today this man is with Jesus. But in the short time between this event and his own death, he had a word to preach. And he did it with singular enthusiasm. Verse 39, after Jesus says, return home and tell how much God has done for you, the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Jesus permitted some to follow him physically. Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast seven demons, chapter 8 and verse 2. But he had a different plan for this man. It was to be his witness in this region. And rather than complaining, the man responded enthusiastically. He willingly told people the good news about what Jesus had done for him. So who is Jesus of Nazareth? These two miracle accounts demonstrate that he is Lord of the natural and the supernatural realms. Let that filter down into your soul once again. He is the Lord of the natural and the supernatural realms. Is that how you understand Jesus? Do your actions and your words reflect on a daily basis that this is who you know Jesus to be? Do you see why we need to consider again the old accounts? We don't live as if that's who Jesus is. And so we need to come back to the old Sunday school stories and stop and say and admit it. 
as we consider it anew, we don't act like that's who he is. He is the Lord of everything that you see, every force in this world, even those that you don't see. He is the Lord. In light of this passage, I think it's fair to say that those who rightly assess who Jesus is will respond to him with appropriate measures of fear and faith and witness. Fear. If we rightly judge who Jesus is, our hearts should be filled with a sense of wonder and awe as we relate to him. There should be a deep reverence and respect for Jesus that determines the very orientation of our lives. You are not the Lord of your life. You may be seeking to live that way. You may be seeking to exercise your will in that direction, but you are not the Lord of your life. I am not the Lord of my life. He is. Whether we acknowledge it or not, He is the Lord. And there should be a sense of wonder and amazement at that. A deep reverence and respect for Him. But here's the amazing thought. The wind and the sea and the demons obey Him, but we don't. Do you see Jesus for who He really is? The response should be fear, a reverential awe. He is the Lord of the universe. He's to be feared and He's to be obeyed. We need to respond then in faith. We live in a fallen world. And in this fallen world, there are natural disasters, catastrophes. These were not God's design in the original creation. It was a world where there was no hurricane and there were no tornadoes. There were no earthquakes. There was no damaging winds or hail or storm. There was not even rain. So gentle was the sustenance of the earth that it did not even rain. Just a gentle dew kept it all alive. But in this fallen world, we live in a world of natural disaster. Just wait, it'll come. It's going to be on your front page soon. There'll be another hurricane that hits and takes out all kinds of property and perhaps a number of lives. There'll be a typhoon somewhere in the east in these coming days. And there'll be a lot of people dead in the news as we watch it. Catastrophes, disaster, natural disaster, demonic influence is everywhere in this world. Disease and death. It is a fallen, cursed world. But Jesus came to beat it. And if we have any question that he can, we see him there on the sea saying, be still, and it stops. If we have any question then we see him say to this man inhabited by perhaps thousands of demons, go, and they're gone. And we will watch as he defeats disease and death and all of this saying, this is who he is. He's come to conquer our sinful world. And he has come to conquer your sinful world. He has come as a savior not simply as a loving teacher, but He has come as your Savior. This is who He intends to be. 
And I ask you again this morning, if you have come to saving faith in Him, if you've come to see who He really is and to permit His forgiveness, He will lighten the path. He will call you to Himself. But it is from your perspective, your responsibility to embrace Him. Faith will say to us then not only that He is the Savior, but faith will also say to us that He must redeem our emotions. Where is your faith, He says to the disciples in this situation. What must He say to us when we are overcome with anger? When we are overcome with fear? When we are overcome with depression? When we are overcome with anxieties of so many kinds? I don't say this harshly, but does not Jesus knock on our heart and say, where is your faith? It's not right for us to be critical. There are some who deal with anger more than others, some who deal with fears more than others. We need to be understanding and gracious to one another. But I say in all of that, does he not knock on the door and say, where is your faith? We live in a world that says... Where is your doctor? Where is your prescription? Where is your group of friends with whom you can drown your sorrows? Jesus knocks on our heart's door and says, where is your faith? If he can command the demons to leave a man, he can deal with your heart. He can cleanse it. He can keep it. He can purify it. He can deliver it. The issue is, who is he to you? Is he the Lord of heaven and earth? Or is he one God on your shelf? If he's the Lord of heaven and earth, then he can cure any malady. You will suffer no emotional ordeal or face any stiffer temptation than did the man controlled by a legion of demons. So who is, who is Jesus? He is the answer. He is the fully sufficient Savior, the all-powerful one over any obstacle in your life. And I implore all of us to look to Jesus. Thirdly, witness. If he, if he is who the Bible says that he is, then it should be our joy to tell others about him. I love the way Jesus says this here. It's not go fill people full of theological truths. Go off and become a teacher and make sure you're there at the synagogue every Sabbath and get all the knowledge that you can and slowly and eventually begin to teach people the truths of the Old Testament. Now, All that may be good and right for some people in the right situation, but what does Jesus say very simply to this man? Return and tell how much God has done for you. If you have faith and you fear the Lord for who he is, can you not do that? Can we not just tell people what the Lord has done for us? I thank God for this man. I'm sure deeply disappointed that he could not go with Jesus, but I thank God for this man who went back to the village and didn't pout. He got busy and did just that. He told people what Jesus had done for him. 
And as we do, writes one commentator, our glory must always be not in what we can do for Christ, but in what Christ can do for us. The unanswerable proof of Christianity is a recreated man. How tragic it would be for us to respond as these did here and send Jesus away. Writes another commentator, one of life's greatest tragedies is to see God at work and pretend nothing has really happened. Let's not do that in our church. To see God at work and pretend as if nothing's happened. Let's not do that in our homes. Let's not do that in our lives. And don't do that with someone who has come to saving faith in Christ. To see the tremendous work of God and pretend as if nothing has happened. Have you studied Jesus and judged Him properly? Do you know who He is? Do you live like it? Are you broadcasting His glories as God provides opportunity? Let's remember together... Eden Baptist Church, those who visit with us. Jesus Christ is Lord of the natural realm. And He is Lord of the supernatural realm. Believe it and live it. Let's bow for prayer. I don't know, Father, if fear has overcome us. Perhaps it should, and perhaps we should all be on our face on the ground. But I do believe and sense from your people that perhaps at least there is humility. As we gather here together as your people and we consider who Jesus is, we realize that we don't live as if he is the Lord of nature and the supernatural. But I pray that little pieces of biblical truth will come to settle in our souls like this and that you will sanctify us and change us and nurture us in the faith. I pray that we will grow and become the people that you want us to become. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ and though we bow before you in in spiritual poverty, though we are humbled in your presence, God, there's a joy in our heart and a In fact, the smile on our face when we think of who Jesus is. And we think of what he's done. And we think then, dear God, that there is nothing in this earth that can take us away from his power. And we know that we are trusting the one who is trustworthy. Help us to see him for who he is, I pray. And draw to yourself any who may not know him yet as Savior. That by coming to you in faith, they might come to know who Jesus is. In increasing waves of revelatory glory. I pray this, Father, in the name of our Savior. Amen. Let's stand together and sing on your hymn sheet.